Welcome to the Zenith Law Academy podcast, the podcast that provides content creators and other internet businesses with practical legal information and tips to help you protect and scale up your business. And now here's your host, Credence Fogo Soul. Hi, and welcome to the third episode of Zenith Law Academy podcast. I'm your host, Credence Fogo Soul. As you probably know by now, I've been a lawyer and legal educator for 25 years, and now I'm here to help content creators and other people who have internet businesses to make sense of the law as it applies to them. This week's episode is the second of two, focusing on the incredibly important process of setting up a legal business plan. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit the website at www.zenithlawacademy.com, and there you can join our mailing list to receive freebies and special offers. Finally, you could follow us on Instagram and Facebook, and you can join the Facebook group for more discussion of today's topic. And now, without further ado, let's keep on talking about legal business planning. As I said a moment ago, this is part two of a two-part episode. Now, this second episode focuses on how to properly hire and use independent contractors, what you need to, why you need to do an intellectual property audit of your business, and how to create a legal crisis plan. So let's get started. So maybe after hearing last week's episode, and specifically the section on hiring employees, the really long section on hiring employees, you're thinking something like, wow, there is a lot of regulation if I'm going to do that. And you're right. Employees may be an essential part of your business, but you do have to set them up right. And there are a lot of regulations to adhere to. And so if you but if you need reliable support from somebody who's going to stick around, it is well worth it to adhere to those regulations and to make sure that your employees are being treated appropriately. However, what if your current needs don't justify hiring somebody on as an employee who's there week in, week out for the same number of hours? Often, we just can't afford to do that at the beginning, but we still need helpers. That's where independent contractors come in. An independent contractor is a person who provides services, such as being a virtual assistant for your business or being hired to do social media marketing, that kind of thing. Um, so it's somebody that you that you bring on to provide you with services, but you're not hiring them as, a, as an actual employee. With this type of a helper, an independent contractor, uh, you have a lot more flexibility, but there are still legal requirements that you have to consider and that you have to comply with. So here are a few of the legal requirements that you have to consider before you bring on an independent contractor. First, let's talk about the definition of an independent contractor, because this really fundamental issue, this is where a lot of people get in trouble. Essentially, you cannot just think that the term independent contractor, that those are magic words that you can use to, you know, magically deem somebody who works for you not an employee and therefore not entitled to the rights and benefits of being an employee. Um, you can't just say, oh, you're an independent contractor if that person in substance is really an employee. If you do that, you can find yourself in a world of painful trouble with the tax authorities and probably with the wage and hour authorities as well. So let's get a basic definition of an independent contractor under our belt. What an independent contractor is, is it is a self-employed individual who provides services to your business. They are not employees, and they are responsible for paying their own payroll taxes, insurance, and other business expenses. That's what an independent contractor is. 
Now, when you decide to work with an independent contractor, it's critical that you always have a written agreement that clarifies everybody's expectations and responsibilities. Remember last week when I told you that like technically you could do a written employment contract with your employee, but it's hardly ever a good idea for a business to do so? Well, that's not true if you have an independent contractor working with you. If you're working with an independent contractor, then you do want a written contract. Um, Let's talk about the provisions that you need to include in an independent contractor agreement. Number one, you need to clearly describe and define the tasks or projects that the contractor will be doing. Number two, you need to outline the payment terms. Number three, you need to describe the timeline. What I mean by that is that if you're hiring somebody to help you get a specific project done, then it's a best practice to include deadlines and project milestones in your independent contractor agreement so that if things start to go off the rails, uh, you'll be able to deal with them early on. Okay, so those are the first three things that you have to include in your independent contractor agreement. Number four, you want to address the issue of intellectual property. More specifically, you must state, I mean, you don't have to, but um, if you want to protect yourself, you must state in your independent contractor agreement that any intellectual property that the contractor creates is a quote, work for hire, unquote. And the term work for hire, those are magic words. Use that specific term, work for hire. So you need to state in your contract that any intellectual property, for example, a logo um, that the contractor creates is a work for hire and that the rights to that intellectual property belong to the business, not to them. That's gonna save you a lot of, oh, I don't know, lawsuits um, and expense and trouble in the long run. Number five, you may wish to include a confidentiality clause in your independent contractor agreement. You want this so that the contractor is required to keep your sensitive business information confidential. Number six, you want to include a termination provision. This is very, very important um, because one of the one of the things about uh, having an independent contractor versus an employee is that if you have an independent contractor working for you under a contract, they're actually going to have a few more rights than employees typically would because they're not subject to that at will employment rule. So you want to have a termination clause that describes clearly the conditions under which either party, you or them, can terminate the agreement. It is really important that your termination clause be as clear and precise as possible because it is termination, surprise, surprise, that tends to spark the most lawsuits. Nobody wants that. Okay, number seven, you want to address insurance and liability in your independent contractor agreement. If the type of um, work that the contractor is doing is the type that would uh, necessitate them having liability insurance, then you put that in the contract, that they need to have liability insurance, that it is their responsibility to obtain the liability insurance, and that they will be required to provide you with proof of the liability insurance before the contract begins. Number eight, taxes. This part is very important. Make sure that you include a clause stating that the contractor is responsible for their own taxes and that they do not receive employee benefits. Number nine, a non-compete clause. Now this is... I don't know if you call it a controversial issue, but it can be a complicated one. Uh, many lawyers will tell you 
that it's important to include a non-compete clause that prevents your independent contractor from running out and either working for one of your competitors or for starting their own business that competes with you later on. However, you do need to consult with a local lawyer before you include a non-compete in your agreement, um, because although these, these um, clauses are very standard in some states, in other states, such as California, um, the courts make it very difficult to enforce a non-compete agreement, um, and often they will simply find those, those clauses um, unenforceable, although that's more likely to occur when you're talking about somebody who's an employee as opposed to somebody who's an independent contractor, but it's still it's something that I want you to be aware of. Okay, what are we on? I think we're on number nine, maybe number nine, dispute resolution. You need a dispute resolution clause, and what the clause needs to say is that it needs to define how disputes will be resolved. Uh, do you want to go to court? Do you want to go to arbitration? Do you want to go to mediation? What do you want to do? Um, you need to um, define which state's laws are going to govern any disputes. Typically, that's the uh, law of the state that you're in. Um, and where disputes will be resolved. For example, say that uh, you're in Los Angeles and your independent contractor is in Fresno. You may say, you know, dispute resolution clause, uh, any, any dispute between the parties will be determined under the laws of the state of California in the Los Angeles Superior Court. As long as you choose some forum, meaning some, you know, courthouse that's located in an area that, you know, is reasonable based on where you both are located, that forum selection clause as part of the dispute resolution clause is likely to be upheld. If you have one that's truly crazy, then the courts often will not uphold them. I had a case once in my previous life where I represented, uh, it was an employment law case, it was a former employee who was suing his company, um, and the company was in Australia. Most of the board members who are also defendants were in Australia or New Zealand or other countries that are not America. The employee lived in, lived and worked uh, in Texas, and for reasons that are lost to the mists of time, his employment agreement, because he was a high-level um, he was a high-level C-suite type employee, so he did have an employment contract, even though he was an employee. Um, his employment contract said that if there were any disputes between him and the company, that they would be decided under the laws of Jersey. Um, and I'm not, not New Jersey, not New Jersey, not New Jersey, the one that's near New York. I'm talking about Jersey, which is a little island between England and France, whose law, by the way, because I had to learn it for this case, um, whose laws, by the way, are a combination of English law and French law, and some of it still contains aspects of medieval law. Um, the lawsuit ended up being filed in Texas, kicked to arbitration, and the arbitrator said, no, we're not doing this under Jersey law, sorry. Um, so, you know, that's an example of a kind of crazy dispute resolution clause with a, with a choice of law and forum that didn't seem to have much relationship to where any of the parties were or where the dispute was. So, you know, be reasonable and it'll be fine. Okay, I think we're at number 10. Um, independent contractor status. That's another issue that you need to address in your independent contractor agreement. This is kind of a CYA provision, but you should include a clause that specifically says that the provider, that your service provider agrees and acknowledges that they are an independent contractor, not an employee. So those are the basic matters that you need to hit when you're putting together your independent contractor agreement.
Now, both before and during your independent contractor relationship, um, I need you to understand the IRS's rules for deciding whether a worker is an employee or an independent contractor. Because if you, you know, decide, oh, I'm just going to say the magic words independent contractor and, and you know, that's going to that's gonna result in you not being an employee when they actually are, that's called misclassification. And if you misclassify an employee as an independent contractor, you can get hit with a big tax bill that includes not only the back taxes, but also lots of penalties. The most important factor that is considered when a dispute comes up about somebody being an employee versus an independent contractor is how much control you exercise over them. And let me just back up for a second to tell you how you are very likely to end up being sued for misclassification. And I've, I've handled a few of these lawsuits and they did not go well for the employers. Unfortunately, I was representing the employees. But in any event, um, when you will typically see this happen is if you have somebody who's working for you and you know you pay them like you know a flat fee per week um or something of that nature and you say oh i'm going to pay $500 a week um and then you give them 60 hours worth of work um which is going to put them below the minimum wage and also into overtime land. Um, and they say, well, wait a minute, you need to pay me time and a half for the time that I worked over 40 hours. And you say, but oh no, you're an independent contractor. Um, well, do you think that that person is going to say, oh yeah, no problem and just, you know, go away? No, they're not. What they're going to do is they're going to go to their state uh, labor board and they're going to file a lawsuit against you for wage and hour violations. And what their argument is going to be is that you misclassified them as an independent independent contractor when you should, they should have been an independent contractor, meaning somebody who is not entitled to the minimum wage, who is not entitled to overtime pay. Um, they misclassified you when really they should have been an employee who has those wage and hour rights. Um, well, how is the labor board, you know, or a court, if it comes to that, going to decide if your service provider is actually an employee? Um, the, the ultimate question that is going to be considered, the most important issue that's going to be considered when a dispute comes up in which a tribunal is called upon to decide whether a person is an employee or an independent contractor is this. How much control are you exercising over that person? For example, if you tell this person where to work, when to work, and how to work, that person kind of looks like an employee. So, you know, you sign your independent contractor agreement and you're like, okay, so you need to be at this desk at my work, at my place of business from nine to five through Monday through Friday. And you get to take lunch between 1230 and one. And here is how I want you to, to do your tasks. Well, at that point, this person is kind of looking like an employee. In contrast, if the person works their own hours in their own location and essentially completes the work any way they want, as long as the finished product is what you asked for, obviously, then the person is going to look like an independent contractor. So in that case, say, you know, you sign your independent contractor agreement and, you know, they go and they do their work in their home office. And, you know, maybe they work from two to four in the morning, but it doesn't matter because you're not exercising control over that. All you care about is that they hit their milestones and that, you know, you get the finished project when they say you're going to get the finished project, right? Um, so what I'm saying is do not treat your service provider um, like an employee if you want them to be an independent contractor, even if they've been with you for a while and you're getting really comfortable with them. Treat them as an independent contractor. Okay. Um, finally, at the end of the year, um, 
at the, when the end of the year comes and, and you're using the service as an independent contractor, you still have one tax obligation with an independent contractor, and that is that you have to give them a 1099 along with the state equivalent to document what they earned. Obviously, you want to keep good records about what you're paying them. Ultimately, if you want to be absolutely sure that your independent contractor arrangement is appropriate and that your contract covers all the bases, here's what you're going to want to do. It's going to cost you a little money, but I think it's money well spent. You're going to want to have a local lawyer take a look. Um, this can be a little bit expensive, um, but once you have that lawyer uh, legally review and sign off on your first independent contractor agreement, then you can use that agreement as a model when you hire other independent contractors in the future. So essentially you're sort of investing in having a lawyer either create a template for you or sign off on what you have created as a template. Okay, so that's what you need to know about employees. Well, last week you learned about employees, but that's what you need to know about uh, independent contractors, how they're different from employees, and what you need to know about how to protect yourself in an independent contractor relationship. Let's move on to the next aspect of your legal business plan, intellectual property planning. Now, there's a lot more information about intellectual property planning in episode one of the podcast. So if you have not listened to that episode yet, I recommend that you do so. That said, there are a few additional issues that should be included in any legal business plan beyond what we discussed in episode one, and I'm going to give you just a brief list of those now. Copyright. Copyright your intellectual property, your intellectual property, not only your website, but also the content contained within it. Number two, trademark. You may wish to register for trademark protection if you want to protect your logo or your company name because logos and company names are not protected by copyright. That's trademark. Third, and finally, I told you this was gonna be brief, I want you to do an intellectual property audit on yourself. Go through your website, go through all of the materials that you are distributing to the public and make sure that you are not infringing on other people's IP rights, um, including, for example, by using proprietary fonts that you don't have a license for, or photographs that you don't have permission to post, or, and this is a new one, AI-generated content that might infringe on other people's rights or even unlicensed music and sound effects on your podcast. And if you find anything that you are using and you are distributing to the public that you don't have the right to, fix it. Fix it now. Okay, so now we've gone through choice of entity, and, and I'm, I'm you know calling back to last week's episode as well because this is a two-parter. Uh, so now we've gone through choice of entity, business formation issues, employment and independent contractor agreements, and intellectual property issues. The final major section of your legal business plan is something that hopefully you will never need, but you still have to have it. And what is it? It's a legal crisis plan. What is your plan if you're served with a copyright takedown notice by another creator? What is your plan if you're sued? What is your plan if somebody steals your intellectual property or breaks a contract with you? Well, step one, don't panic. Step one, don't panic. Step two, pull out your legal crisis plan. But what is a legal crisis plan? Well, it's a structured strategy that you're going to put together to address and manage legal problems and crises when they come at you to make sure that your response is calm, coordinated, effective, and legal. So let's talk about the components that you should, that you should include in your legal crisis plan. It should contain the following elements. 
Section one, you want to identify your most likely legal risks. Basically, you're going to brainstorm here. You're going to assess your business and you're going to figure out the potential legal risks that your business might face. It could be employee lawsuits. It could be infringement. It could be another company poaching your employees. It's a very individualized analysis. It's something that only you can do because you, at the end of the day, are the person who knows your business the best. Okay, so that's section one. Section two, who is your legal crisis response team? Well, that would be you, of course. Um, if your business, if, if you've hired a lawyer, if, if you have you know, sort of a, a general, uh, a lawyer who provides you with general representation, then obviously your lawyer is an important part of that team. Um, one thing that people don't often think about is that if you have somebody who does social media management for your company, that person is also on the crisis team. Why? So that your company can craft your message and control comments, moderation, in other words, and so forth on your company's social media. Whoever you decide to add to that team, you, your lawyer, your social media person, anybody else, make sure that their roles are clear and well-defined. You will thank me for it when you're in crisis mode. Okay, the next thing I want you to do is to create a communication strategy that you will employ during times of legal crisis. This does not have to be complicated. You might, for example, simply decide that any media inquiries should be answered by a single person to have a single point of contact, whether that's you, PR person, lawyer, whoever it is, just pick someone because you want to keep your message consistent. And if you have just anybody answering the phone and talking to whoever, consistency is not going to happen. Um, in addition, you may wish to designate a point person to put together a specific communications response when specific legal crises arise. Okay. Next thing you need to think about when putting together that crisis plan is a lawyer. If you don't have a lawyer, you need to get one. Um, this is part of the crisis plan that you need to execute before the crisis. Um, you can hire a lawyer or a firm to be your general counsel. You can sign the engagement agreement. And you can make sure that they understand that they're being brought on for the purpose of legal crises. Uh, alternatively, you could interview firms, make a short list of your top candidates, and inform your top choice that you will be retaining them when the need arises. Here's what you don't want to do. You don't want to have a legal crisis, you know, like you get sued and in a lawsuit that could end your company, and at that point, start looking for a lawyer. Do not do that. Have somebody identified in advance. Um, for more tips and information and a guide on how to choose a lawyer, uh, we are going to be offering a mini course that is expected to drop in the next two to three weeks called How to Hire a Lawyer Without Getting Screwed. Um, it is a short course. It's just uh, about an hour and a half, two hours, and I highly recommend it. For more information, you can visit our website at zenithlawacademy.com and sign up for our mailing list so that you can be informed when that course becomes available. Okay, so that's that's what you need to do in terms of getting a lawyer on board. Next, next part of your legal crisis uh, plan is you need to include a section on document preservation, and you need to include a policy to provide to everybody who works for you. The reason is that it is critical to preserve documents and data during a legal crisis, and you have to have procedures for, for preserving both physical records, meaning pieces of paper, and electronic records. Um, because if you destroy that kind of information, uh, the consequences in a lawsuit can be pretty awful. Um, for example, if you are a plaintiff in a lawsuit and you 
destroy evidence. Um, ultimately, what the court can do as sort of the, the harshest push punishment possible is they can issue terminating sanctions. That's like the death penalty in a civil lawsuit. Basically, it says to you, hey, plaintiff, you know, we don't care if you're right or wrong. You destroyed evidence. We're dismissing your case. Um, on the defense side, there's sort of a, a similar um, a, a similar punishment uh, in which you may simply have a, a, a dispositive legal issue like, oh, I don't know, liability decided against you if you're found to have destroyed evidence. So don't destroy evidence, create a document preservation and retention policy and make sure everybody knows what it is. Okay, moving on. Uh, the next thing I want you to include in your legal business plan is information about your insurance coverage. Your business should have insurance, at least you know, basic uh, errors and admission uh, errors, errors and omission coverage and basic commercial general liability coverage. Um, what you want to put in your legal crisis plan is all of the relevant contact information and the policy numbers for the insurance company. Um, if you business gets sued, your insurer will often provide you with a lawyer to defend you against claims uh, that may be covered. However, if you delay in tendering a legal complaint to them, and when I say tendering, I mean, you know, sending the, the complaint over to them. If you delay in tendering that lawsuit to them, um, they may attempt to deny coverage. Um, so make it easy for yourself and your team to contact the insurer and get them involved as early as possible. Okay, I just have two more points to make with respect to your legal business plan, and, and then we are close to finish. The next thing I want you to include in your legal business plan is I want you to create a policy on confidentiality and communications with the company's lawyer. You need to explain to employees and independent contractors alike that confidential communications need to stay that way unless the court orders otherwise. No telling your husband or wife about it, no talking about it at the bar, nothing like that. Confidential communications are confidential unless the court orders otherwise. And have them acknowledge their agreement to make to, to keep confidential materials confidential. Okay. As a final thought on your legal crisis plan, I want to emphasize that having this plan in place is going to help you respond effectively and it will help you avoid making legally risky mistakes when a legal issue or crisis arises. So take this part of your legal business plan seriously. It's not it's not fun, but you have to take it seriously and make sure that your your crisis plan is both comprehensive and tailored to meet the anticipated needs of your business. Okay. The final issue that I want to address in this third episode of the podcast is the issue of when you need a lawyer. When do you need a lawyer? The, f the final issue you're going to want to consider when you're putting together a legal business plan is the issue of retaining counsel. Now, even if you don't have a lawyer on retainer at the time that you create your businesses and do not feel bad because most businesses don't, um, you should make a contingency plan for hiring one quickly when the need arises. Um, and as I said earlier in the discussion about the legal crisis plan, ideally you want to have that person either retained or knowing they're going to be retained before you get sued, not after. Okay, so typically hiring a lawyer involves identifying and interviewing candidates um, early as early as possible and establishing the relationship. What you want to avoid is finding yourself in a cold calling situation when you have a pressing legal issue. And all of our 
courses and coaching programs, we do address this issue to help you put together a plan to find appropriate legal counsel in your area. Um, and the, the program that is the most specifically tailored for that is the forthcoming How to Hire a Lawyer Without Getting Screwed course. Um, in any event, um, you can take that course, uh, you could just listen to this podcast, uh, or you can also take advantage of our coaching programs um, in which we can address this issue and help you put together a plan to find appropriate legal counsel to be uh, in your area, to be a critical member of your team at critical turning points in your entrepreneurial journey. So for more information about coaching, you can visit zenithlawacademy.com slash store. And that provides fulsome descriptions that I'm not going to repeat here of both individual coaching sessions and our coaching series. Now, you may not have the budget to have a lawyer on board from day one. Like I said, most new businesses don't. No shame in that. However, by incorporating legal issues into your business plan from the beginning, you can foresee a lot of the legal risks, the liabilities, requirements, and opportunities that affect you in advance. Furthermore, by educating yourself about the basic aspects of the law that apply to your business, you can do your legal planning, and eventually, when you do have a lawyer, you're going to be able to work with that lawyer in a cost-effective manner, um, meaning that you're going to come in with a base of knowledge. You're going to understand the basics of employment law, of contract law, of intellectual property law, so that you're not spending however many hundreds of dollars an hour your lawyer charges so that they can explain to you the basics. The basics. You can come in and say, hey, I do understand the basics. Let's talk about my problem. And then you've been a cost-effective, informed, and savvy client. Um, so that's why it's so important to understand the basic aspects of the law that apply to your business so that you have that foundational knowledge that you need to minimize your the money you spend on outside counsel and to protect and advance your business as it's going along. Okay. Um, Finally, to get you started on your legal business planning journey, we're offering a free legal business planning mini guide with an action plan and a resource guide that you can get at zenithlawacademy.com. Um, check back uh, both on our website and uh, on Instagram and Facebook um, for more information about that. If you like what you've heard today, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at, at Zenith Law Academy, and don't forget to join our Facebook group, which is also called Zenith Law Academy. Also, please don't forget that this podcast provides legal education, knowledge, and opinions, not legal advice and not legal representation. To keep up to date on the legal issues that will increase your business savvy and your business's value, tune into our next episode in which we will delve deeper into the process of finding your very own lawyer. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Zenith Law Academy podcast. Please hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform to receive notifications every time a new podcast is posted. Please note that the information provided on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not create an attorney-client relationship. For more information, blog posts, or to contact the show, please visit www.zenithlawacademy.com.